is the eve of Mahashivratri. And so, a satsang is an important portal to this sacred day that we are approaching. And it is important to contextualize it in relation to the unfoldment of the matrix of which it is the climactic moment of <coughs> revelation. So for this past week, <clears throat> this one has been cocooning and preparing and downloading and uh, bringing in the messages that are to be relayed, transmitted, some of which have gone into a book that is now nearly complete and uh, hopefully will also be released as a timely uh, supplement to help people navigate through this extraordinary moment in history that all of us are having to face and to overcome its challenges as our final examination to graduate from this level of the wisdom school. Those who have the desire to graduate and who have uh, the credits to do so. And so the importance of this day is something I would like to uh, speak about and the mode of our preparing. So far as I know, Mahashivaratri is the only holiday of its kind. Most holidays celebrate an event that took place in the past. And they are uh, rememorations of something that happened. Whether it happened historically, or it happened metaphorically, or it happened archetypally, is not so relevant to the mind of the worshiper, of the believer. Did the Passover really happen the way that it was uh, told in the Torah? Did the crucifixion and the resurrection actually happen? Did the birth of Christ happen uh, the way that it's told? Did the three magi come? Those are irrelevant uh, details of uh, an event that is ultimately to be understood as an event of consciousness that must occur for us. And so every holiday of every religion is simply uh, information regarding our own transition to God consciousness from the illusion. Every holiday is, in a sense, a festival of lights, a festival of rebirth, a festival of the uh, return to the lost uh, sense of divinity that uh, was exchanged for the mortal mind and the intensity of experience at the human level of the matrix. 
But Mahashivratri is different in a certain sense. For one thing, it's not a festival of lights. It is a celebration of the night of history. It's specifically a holiday that celebrates the night, the darkness. And Shiva comes at the moment of deepest darkness in history, when all hope has been lost, when all faith has been lost, when all the meaning of all the other holidays has been trashed and commercialized and turned into uh, a, a meaningless uh, uh, repetition of signifiers without a signified. So it, it is that moment when the world has turned atheistic and materialistic and completely lost in a, uh, a complexity of ego fragmentation in which no sense of a unified being, let alone a divine transcendent being, remains in the conscious uh, sphere of, uh, of identity, of reality for oneself. It is all a myth. It is all a belief system. It's all simply uh, a story told by uh, elders who themselves have lost faith. So it's at this moment that our capacity to overcome our indoctrination and our uh, limitation of event horizon that is stuck within the boundaries of the sensory modality and the logic of the two-valued mind of the ego and uh, the identification with a body that is dependent upon uh, other people, family system, to give it a sense of value and meaning and has no larger context to relate it to the infinite and the divine and therefore uh, creates an ego that is weak and, uh, and helpless and addicted and hysterical and bipolar and all the rest that everyone knows firsthand, if not uh, second and third hand. Uh, but pretty much everyone has either gone through it and come out of it or is still in the dark night of the soul and suffering from ego fragmentation and weakness and all of the hysterical events that that produces in one's life, as well as the karmic consequences of that, which is suffering on a physical level. The karma that hits the body, the karma that destroys our peace, even within the bodily vehicle, whether it's indigestion or uh, ringing in the ears or it's some pain or one falls and nearly breaks one's neck or it is any of a number of different karmic events that produce suffering in the body. All of this is part of the perfection of our being tested to recognize that we are not the body but that we are pure spirit. All of it has to happen exactly the way that it is happening. And all of it is, in fact, a test of our intelligence, of our love, and of our faith. Because if and when we recover that faith, it comes with power. 
It comes with the ability to overcome whatever symptoms of suffering, whatever tendencies of, uh, of self-attacking mental chatter, whatever uh, kind of uh, delusions <clears throat> that the mind is under that lead it to make terrible mistakes in judgment that produce remorse and regret and all of the other effects. Uh, that the ego mind has, either immediately or in the long term, uh, for those who follow that mind rather than the mind of God. So <clears throat> it is in this moment that all of that comes to a climax, both in the microcosm and in the macrocosm. And we can see all the stupidity of the politicians and all of those people who seem to be running the show, whether financially or, or, or politically or militarily or whatever, we can see that very clearly. But can we see the same thing happening within the microcosm of our own ego and uh, its uh, uh, irrational decisions, irrational fears, irrational uh, pipe dreams and fantasies, uh, irrational beliefs of whatever kind that support the logical structure of the ego to give it the illusion of existence. And that existence requires suffering as its proof. I suffer, therefore I am, is the ego's modus operandi in order to sustain its diversion from the self because the ego is a running away from the self into the chatter, into the suffering, into the body, into the wishing, into the loss and the lack and all of that that produces the kind of world that we inhabit and the kind of mind that inhabits our own consciousness and has usurped our divine nature. So, what does it mean that Shiva comes in the night of history and returns at that moment of deepest darkness when all hope is lost and when uh, we, we feel that we have not even the worthiness to plead for the help of God? or for a belief in God, or for a love for God, because the heart has shriveled and its ability to love is shrunken. It cannot even love itself, and uh, its love for others is much more out of fear of abandonment and rejection and all of those uh, ulterior motives than an actual outpouring of the energy of the real that abides in the heart. So in this state of uh, feeling like an imposter, feeling lack, feeling uh, barren of power and of goodness and of purity and of light, it's at that moment uh, when God returns and enters into the consciousness again and lights the light of the soul and brings the Holy Spirit back into full consciousness. 
It's that moment that will come for you in the future if it hasn't come already. For each being, Mahashivratri will come at a different moment in time, but it's an event that happens outside of time that for the majority will not only come at the end of time, but will be the end of time. Because God consciousness is eternity. It is the end of time, the end of the illusion of a linear process of entities and objects going through an entropic uh, process of uh, exhaustion in, a, in a, uh, an environment in which uh, life forms become extinct and, uh, and death becomes hegemonic over the power of life. It's, it's that realization that all of this is an illusory dream that is manifested by an infinite power of life and light that cannot be destroyed, that returns to withdraw its energy from a misshapen version of itself, that final degradation of the great archetype of the self into its demonic uh, other, and returns every being, every consciousness back to the divine light. And in that withdrawal into the singularity, then the power of God consciousness again flows out through the eye of Shiva and a voila, a kingdom of heaven is set out before you. As the Gospel of Thomas said, what happened if the eye becomes single and filled with light, then it's not that Mahashivratri or the coming of God is at the end of time, but that it happens now and ends the illusion of time. So this is the, uh, that moment that is transhistorical but that comes at the end of history to culminate that process of fall and turn it into redemption and new creation. So Mahashivratri is a celebration of that which is to come and that which is eternally our true nature. But it must be realized in this plane through the fullness of our realization by surrendering the ego illusion in order to be filled with that divine power again. And that is how we can make use of a day like this, a sacred day, to devote our consciousness to emptying out of the ego and being receptive to the presence of God so that we can once again attain and retain that consciousness and not fall again back into the illusion. So in India, because this is a Hindu holiday, even though it's actually a universal holiday, the coming of Shiva is also the second coming of Christ, the coming of the Moshiach, the coming of Kalki, the coming of whatever avatar, Maitreya, or uh, the, uh, if you're one of the Shiites, then it's the last imam or whoever. All of those are different metaphors for that coming of God consciousness. There's one religion with many names and many ways of expressing the same truth. So it doesn't matter uh, which uh, uh, cultural uh, 
intonation or idiomatic expression of the truth that you received in childhood or converted into, recognize the universality of what is being revealed and, uh, and not uh, feel some need to choose uh, one religious belief or another because then you would be on the level of the signifier and not the signified. So we have to go beyond words, beyond any uh, linguistic or conceptual uh, paradigm that would try to put this within some frame of reference that the ego can grasp because the whole point of this is to shatter that paradigm and all of its illusions and break through into infinite consciousness that cannot be contained in language. So, an Orthodox Hindu on this day would fast, okay? Now, Sat Yogis prefer to feast. <laughs> I'm quite aware of that. Uh, which is appropriate if you are already realized in Shiva consciousness, then yes, feasting is the appropriate way to, uh, to respond to this holiday. It's a fact, it's an occurrence, it's not a hope, a yearning that one has to purify oneself for by giving up and renouncing every pleasure in order to want uh, uh, God's uh, uh, redemptive uh, light to fill one. But if one is not yet in that state, uh, you can still feast, but fast from Maya for the next 24 hours, okay? Fast from illusion, fast from mental chatter. Do yourself that favor. You can still eat the delightful food that's on the menu, but eat it in a state of meditation and do everything for the next 24 hours in a meditative state realizing not only that all is Shiva, everything is Shiva, the whole world is only Shiva in drag, but that also means that you are that. And so move away from the illusion that you're separate from Shiva and realize that you are just one more manifestation of Shiva consciousness as an individual uh, molecule within the whole, but that Shiva consciousness that is the whole is what is animating you and is the true nature of your awareness, all right? Superimposed on your awareness, which is Shiva, is mental chatter. That's the ego, okay? Then there's the intellect, the booty, that recognizes that it's mental chatter and that it's an illusion and wants to break free. That's the soul. The soul must turn away from the chatter and turn toward the awareness and dissolve into it. The soul then becomes one with God and the ego mask falls away and is burned in the, in the light, in the sacrificial fire that is created by the consummation of love that the soul has for God. And it's in that that we are liberated from all suffering. Okay, so it's a very simple thing. Nothing needs to be done because you are already Shiva. You are not needing to become worthy to realize or to receive something from a God who is different than you. Let go of all dualistic ideas and realize that the Shiva consciousness, the absolute, the Buddha nature, the ultimate consciousness is already what you are. 
it's only obscured by the mental chatter. Let go of that and the light and the power and the love, the joy, the bliss of God consciousness will be revealed as your essence. So this is what we must do relentlessly for a full period of, of a 24-hour day in order to wipe away the tendencies, the sanskaras, of going back into the illusion. We must keep the illusion away, out of our space, long enough so that it is so filled with the power of that divine presence that your energy field will not have any weaknesses that would allow maya to re-enter, right? It's that simple. Create an energy field of silent, peaceful, serene, loving presence that has no judgments about anyone, no beliefs, uh, no, uh, uh, no, no chatter of any kind interrupting that spaciousness of pure presence. That's all, there's nothing else. And it happens automatically and spontaneously if you are in a state of love of the self. The self is love, but to whatever extent you feel any difference from that infinite love, there has to be a turning to it uh, and an absorption in it. And then you will realize, indeed, you were never born, never created, never separate from Shiva. All of this is just a game, a dream, an illusion, and a beautiful divine play. And you will be ready to emerge as manifestations of that supreme being in a way that will participate in the the public revelation of God by changing the morphogenetic field of the planet through your own vibrational frequency, having become a transmitter of God's presence into the world. So that's our job as yogis. Nothing less, but nothing very difficult that isn't automatic to our nature. Okay, so I hope that's helpful. I brought one of my favorite books of Swami Muktananda. Uh, he, he was, uh, he was a, a, actually a Kashmir Shaivite uh, and, uh, and, one, and one of the last of the gurus who uh, really understood uh, uh, Shaivism. This is my favorite book of his. It's called Nothing Exists That Is Not Shiva. Okay. And it's a book of quotations from the Shiva Sutras and uh, the Vigyana Bhairava and the Guru Gita and, and other uh, Kashmiri texts uh, with his own uh, commentary on th those quotes. And I, I think they're very, very powerful. So one thing to understand is that the Kashmir Shaivites uh, differ from the Advaitins, the Advaita Vedantins, by uh, saying that the absolute is not simply a, a kind of a blob like Brahman is portrayed to be that has no will and no thoughts. No, God has knowledge and will, but 
uh, and doesn't and isn't uh, obscured by Maya. There's no such thing really as Maya. Maya is illusion, so there can't be any such thing as Maya. But uh, Maya is actually the goddess, which is uh, Shiva as a transvestite moving into the field of energy. Shiva, Parama Shiva is the field of energy without agitation, without the will being activated. It's pure potentiality. And then that potentiality gets activated and it becomes the goddess. The activation of the infinite potency of the mind creates the illusion of a world and brings about the whole process of the cyclical time that then uh, returns us back to the revelation of Shiva. So all of that is the work of the goddess. But the goddess and God are not different. There is non-duality, even though there is this uh, differentiation between differentiation and non-differentiation, and, and one is referred to as the goddess and the other as the godhead, but they are, in fact, the same. The field uh, or the ocean and its waves are not different, okay? So one quote is, Chidvat tachaksitam kochat mala vritta samsari. Universal consciousness, chitti, because of contraction becomes an ordinary being subject to limitations. Okay, so that's what has happened. Your consciousness has contracted from an infinite expanse of consciousness that contains the entire cosmos has contracted into the illusion of being a mortal bodily being. But that contraction was only the act of will of the goddess who at some point will expand again into her true nature, reveal herself to herself. That's what happens on Mahashivratri. So, uh, as uh, Muktananda says, the truth is that the highest Lord, pure consciousness, lives in absolute freedom. He is all-pervading and all-knowing, and by his glorious Shakti, he can do whatever he likes at any time. Okay, so, in he, and uh, Muktananda goes into the whole point of freedom. So, uh, and even in the state of being an embodied soul, having lost one's freedom, one is still free to regain that freedom, okay? Freedom that is God consciousness cannot be lost, even though it may apparently seem to have been. The freedom is not really lost. So all you have to do is not believe your mind that tells you you don't have freedom and you don't have power. You must disbelieve your own mind in order to be free. And that's where the difficulty comes. So uh, the, the quote from the uh, Pratyabhigya Hridayam uh, says, the perfect Shiva in his state of perfection is always at play, carrying on the five processes for the upliftment of his devotees. And Kshemaraja praises the Supreme Lord in this way. Salutations to Supreme Shiva, who ceaselessly carries on the sport of the five grand processes, creation, sustenance, dissolution, concealment, which is maya, and grace, which is the revelation that you are God. All of these five are part of the play, okay? 
you can choose which of those five is being activated, okay? If you want to come out of self-concealment into the state of grace, you can do that because you have the freedom. But your will must be wholehearted to want to become free from the ego. And that means the ego will die. The illusion will disappear and must disappear for the real to appear. That's the sticking point for most egos that love their illusion still. And that's why the world has to become so horrible that you stop loving your illusion and really want to return to the real. But don't wait for it to get that horrible for you. Do it now when things are still fine to make them even better and to make life uh, uh, the artwork of God consciousness that it can be, rather than a horror that you are a victim of, turn it into your own beautiful creative uh, process. So uh, that uh, consciousness that is God, which is bliss, is ever one with his own nature. So he assumes the five processes, including concealment of his own nature from himself, for sport, okay? So that's what you have to realize. Your suffering is a game you are playing, literally as a sport, as a contest that you are having with Maya, an enemy, which could be symptoms of suffering in the body or people you can't stand or situations that are oppressive. Whatever it is, this is the sport, this is the game and you can overcome it through returning to God consciousness. That's the only way you can win the game. You can't win the game at the phenomenal level by trying to have power over people or dominate the situations or try to use the ego mind to, to outwit others. It doesn't work that way. The sport requires transcendence of the field of illusion to gain victory. So the, uh, the, the, the final teaching of this is yogis remain aware with unwavering faith of the continual flow of thoughts and the five processes within their own minds. In other words, you may not be able to stop the mental chatter but you can turn the flow of thoughts to thoughts about God, to thoughts about the realization of your true nature, and that will unlock that nature uh, to you. So the seeker who becomes aware of his own authorship of the five acts achieves the divine state, okay? In other words, you're not the character being written in this novel, you are the novelist. You are the author of your character. If you can gain that understanding that you have created your ego and you are not simply uh, the result of the ego's uh, uh, development under the impact of trauma or whatever, but you are the creator, the architect, the designer of your egoic uh, structure, then you have the ability as the author to change all of that. So it is said for this reason that those who on receiving grace 
continually contemplate consciousness, which is Paramashiva, within themselves become Jivan Muktas, okay? become liberated in life. All it takes is that uh, continual contemplation on consciousness, on the fact that you are consciousness, not a body, not mental activity, but the awareness of that. And as long as you remain contemplating that, you become liberated. So you re they regard, yogis who are in this state, regard this cosmos as an expansion of their own self. Though such a person may appear to be bound because possessing a body, prana, and senses, he is in truth a free soul. But those who can consider the objects of perception to be different from the self forever remain in bondage. Okay? So the key to liberation is to realize all of this is Shiva. Everyone, even the people who bother you the most, are Shiva. Okay? And if you can realize that, they won't bother you anymore. And you'll realize the only reason they're bothering you is that you have failed to recognize their real nature and your own real nature. And by honoring that, everything will change. The world is Shiva, you are Shiva. All that is, is only Shiva. If you contemplate that and recognize that Shiva is pure potentiality, conscious awareness that can change because of its freedom of will and its power of authorship can change the context and the conditions of life easily, effortlessly. Remain in that consciousness. Don't try to change it from the ego, from the character, but from that pure consciousness, then the kingdom of heaven will emerge as your true habitat and it won't take a lot of time. So that's the message for how to prepare for Mahashivratri. I hope it's useful to people, to all the great yogis here who are at the point of liberation if you haven't already become Jivan Muktas. So I'm hoping that by tomorrow we'll be able to celebrate everyone's having achieved Jivan Mukti, and that will be a good reason to have a feast. <laughs>